Hi, my name is Carl Pino, uh, host of Genusian Economics. We explore economics and geopolitics in a rapidly changing uh, multipolar world. To learn more, please like this video and subscribe to this channel. You watch those nature documentaries on the cable? Yeah. You see the one about lions? Yeah. Look at this lion. He's the king of the jungle. Huge mane out there. He's laying down under a tree in the middle of Africa. He's so big. He's so hot. He doesn't want to move. Now, the little lion cubs, they start messing with him. Biting his tail, biting his ears. He doesn't do anything. The lioness, she starts messing with him. Coming over, making trouble. Still, nothing. Now, the other animals, they notice this. And they start to move in. The jackals. Hyenas. They're barking at him, laughing at him. They nip his toes and eat the food that's in his domain. They do this, and they get closer and closer and bolder and bolder, till one day, that lion gets up and tears the shit out of everybody, runs like the wind, eats everything in his path. Because every once in a while, the lion has to show the jackals who he is. It's too late to be scared. It's time to kill. I'm going to the other room. You come out when you're ready. Well, the premise of this video is that central banks are now deliberately trying to make us in our societies poorer. Now, this isn't a conspiracy theory. There's a prop... Uh, a popular meme going around about the World Economic Forum that says you will own nothing but you will be happy. We're not trying to promote that idea on this channel. Instead, the purpose of this video primarily is to explain how the central banks deliberately create asset price deflation as a countermeasure against uh, inflation. So the agenda for this video is to discuss the relationship between uh, mo monetary policy and uh, transmission mechanisms uh, that are designed to lower inflation, uh, but our specific uh, focus is going to be on the asset price channel. So money in the economy is created primarily through uh, two mechanisms. One is uh, the creation of government debt. So when the government borrows, money is created in the economy. And when uh, commercial uh, banks make loans to consumers and businesses. Now, we're not going to get into all the details of this. I myself uh, was a commercial lender uh, in the mid-market commercial space from uh, 1990 uh, 
1995 to 1998, three and a half years for Toronto Dominion Bank, um, which became TD Canada Trust. So I was part of that uh, money creation cycle in the economy uh, as I was lending to uh, medium-sized businesses. I had a $200 million uh, loan portfolio. Now, uh, the central bank controls the price of money, and the price of money is controlled through controlling the price of borrowing, and the central bank has two principal means of controlling uh, the borrowing rates in the economy. And one is called the, um, one way is when the central banks set the rate at which they are, are willing to pay for deposits from commercial banks overnight or that they are willing to lend to commercial banks for overnight when they want to borrow to cover their working capital needs. In so doing, they create a market and an incentive for banks uh, to borrow and lend to each other at the midpoint of this range between which the central bank is willing to borrow and lend to individual commercial banks. Uh, This midpoint range in Canada is called the overnight rate or the policy target rate. The second way that the central banks uh, influence interest rates in the economy is by manipulating the size of uh, or amount of uh, assets that the central bank owns uh, or manipulating its so-called balance sheet. Now, um, the central bank can uh, act as a marginal buyer of short-term government bonds And if it acts as a marginal buyer, it increases the demand for those bonds uh, by buying more and raises the price of those bonds. And there is a relationship that the price of a bond and the interest rate of a bond are inversely related. So if the price goes up, the interest rate goes down. So by buying government bonds, it expands uh, um, money supply uh, and... Uh, by acting as a seller of short-term government bonds, it uh, re- adds supply to the market, reduces the price of government bonds in the market, and raises the interest rate. So when it is uh, selling or, or decreasing its balance sheet, it is raising interest rates uh, and uh, by uh, decreasing the price of uh, government bonds in the market. This is called open market operations. You've uh, probably heard by now, unless if you've been interested in uh, listening to macroeconomic um, uh, information in the economy, about something called quantitative easing. Quantitative easing is simply when the the, uh, central bank buys longer-term bonds, thereby influencing the price of long-term 10-year bonds and and further out in the economy, uh, this is a form of yield curve control. So when you are buying uh, long-term government bonds by the central bank, you're reducing the long-term costs of borrowing. So that's uh, right now the central banks are engaged in selling some of those longer-term bonds off their balance sheet, and that's uh, that is a process that's called quantitative tightening or QT right now as opposed to QE. Now, there are three uh, 
monetary policy transmission mechanisms. And when the the um, uh, central bank changes its interest rates, uh, it takes somewhere between six months to 18 months for these transmission mechanisms to work, and they work at a different uh, rate. Now, there's three channels in which those changes uh, take place. There, one of them is called an interest rate channel. And so when uh, we uh, the central bank changes the their policy rate, it lowers or raises the borrowing costs and it changes the um, demand for consumers to make uh, purchasing decisions or the de- the demand for in, uh, funds in the economy for investment. There's also the asset price channel. So a lower interest rate broadly leads to higher asset prices because, again, we talked about this idea. If you can think about a home, uh, for example, well, if a home, if you borrow uh, against uh, a home to buy a mortgage and you put, say, only 5 or 10% down on the home and you bought a million-dollar home, then that home, that value of that home is essentially a debt instrument because you've got a $900,000 mortgage. Now, if interest rates come down, then the value, what, what do we say? We say the price of a debt instrument relates inversely to the interest rate. So a decrease in interest rate would lead to an increase in asset prices. So in general, lower interest rates in the economy lead to higher asset prices for financial assets, and that includes residential homes and commercial property, as well as stock prices, as well as debt instruments. And then the final mechanism of transmission is through the exchange rate. So when we have uh, lower interest rates, uh, investors in our country want to find uh, higher places to invest their money, and they will take the money out of the country, and that will mean they'll sell our currency and buy the other country's currency, and that leads to a devaluation or or depreciation of our currency, Uh, depreciation if it's gradual, devaluation if it's a sudden abrupt move. And uh, the uh, result is a lower exchange rate, and we end up um, uh, stimulating economic activity through exporting more because we have a lower uh, because our imports go down, and uh, the amount that we sell to other countries goes up, which is our exports, and so our net exports increase. Now these three uh, channels of monetary uh, uh, of interest rate or monetary policy uh, changes of the short-term interest rate, uh, as I said, can take 18 months to fully work them their way through the system, but they work at different speeds. So asset price channels work fast. So when uh, the central bank changes its uh, interest rate policy, that's immediately reflected uh, on what you can uh, on borrowing costs for mortgages for both uh, residential and commercial properties, uh, interest rate uh, um, 
like debt instruments in the economy, like uh, provincial government debt, corporate debt, they immediately get adjusted according to this um, uh, changes in this interest rate. So this asset price channel is a, a very, very quick channel of response. Now, the interest rate channel itself, which is where consumers and and businesses change their borrowing decisions on the basis of uh, of uh, the fact that the, uh, the cost of uh, borrowing has gone up or down, takes longer. It's a medium to slower change. Now, um, you can imagine that um, sometimes it, it, if you're in the middle of doing a, um, a project, let's say you're a business uh, that's in the middle of uh, your, your, you've got a five-year development project for something like the oil sands, you're not likely going to stop your project or change much in terms of your investment decisions immediately because you are in the middle of uh, developing a long-term capital project. People and businesses don't immediately uh, adjust their behavior. It, it comes in a medium or slower process. And then exchange rates are uh, are slow because a lot of times when you're uh, making commitments to buy bring things in from China and uh, and or and or sell uh, those commitments are longer term in nature you've set up a contract uh, and that contract's going to run for the next year and so uh, it takes a while for those uh, contractual obligations to run themselves out and for uh, supply and demand to, to readjust themselves. So it tends to be the slowest of the three channels. Now, in the last decade, we had uh, uh, two times which the Bank of Canada had to uh, intervene uh, since 2015 um, uh, to uh, help uh, bolster the economy through a monetary policy. Now, um, one of the things that happened in 2015 is that oil uh, went from uh, over $100 a barrel to around $50 a barrel, even uh, dipping below $50 a barrel at the end of uh, 2014. And oil being worth half of our net exports, this was a tremendous uh, blow to our economy, not, not to mention the fact that... Um, the regional Western economy depends heavily on uh, the, pl- the price of energy. And so Stephen Polis, uh, our Bank of Canada governor at the time, he cut uh, um, uh, short-term interest rates, our, our policy rate, in order to stimulate uh, the economy. The idea was that we would uh, end up with uh, lower exchange rates. This would stimulate our export sector. But what really happened was uh, the interest rate cuts uh, caused uh, asset uh, price, uh, real estate prices in Vancouver and Toronto to rise dramatically. So we ended up with the low interest rates, housing in Canada grew. And we've had a supply issue uh, with housing in Canada because we have very high levels of immigration. And so our immigration is running uh, somewhat 300,000 plus uh, uh, people every year and uh, Vancouver and Toronto end up being the places where immigration uh, uh, is uh, where people at least initially move to the most. 
So people took out uh, bigger mortgages and started using their homes in, like an ATM uh, it, where if those asset prices went up, maybe we have, we, uh, we uh, take out a home equity line of credit and we go on a vacation or we buy a boat or we buy a second property. And so this ended up uh, causing a lot of credit expansion in Canada. And if we look at uh, today, we saw that we see that uh, in Canada, uh, spending on residential real estate uh, and finance exceeds research and development and capital expenditures by our corporate sector. So we've switched to an economy that is highly reliant on our uh, real estate sector. Now, uh, there was another rate cut, of course, that came uh, in 2020 at the start of COVID, and it was a 50 basis point cut. And uh, again, the theory was that our economy was going to slow down. We were, we, uh, were going to be um, uh, have a lot of people who were not going to be able to go to work because of the lockdowns. He, the Bank of Canada is worried that household income uh, would be in trouble. And uh, putting uh, as a, as a result, household uh, asset prices might fall, and so um, if housing becomes broken, uh, 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 residential mortgages are about thirty percent of the assets on our commercial banks' uh, balance sheets, and this could uh, jeopardize the banking system. So, in order to uh, put a, uh, essentially a floor on uh, on asset prices or the fall of asset prices. Obviously, you've made it clear that you were moving towards a cut before uh, the recent events. What, what exactly were you watching that made you go the 50 points? I mean, in other words, what do the data show about COVID-19 specifically? Well, what we're seeing is a very rapid spread uh, to many more countries over the past weekend. Indeed, there was a, a big move. And uh, one of our closest case studies is in Italy. So that's a great uh, insight for us on how things can get disrupted very quickly and uh, what sort of fallout to expect. So that's, that's been helpful as we've gone through this, this decision-making cycle. So now what we want to know is what does the future look like? And if consumer confidence will erode because of the virus, then you expect to see a downdraft in housing. And so the interest rate move this week is intended to address exactly that. So it should help stabilize housing as opposed to pour extra you know, fuel on a hot housing market. So that's a difference than if in the past we may have been thinking of cutting rates because exports were weak. Mm -hmm. And you're trying to boost housing to compensate for weak exports. Well, then you really are adding to vulnerabilities. And so the trade-off looks different depending on what the underlying shock is. I think it's a really important distinction here, Amanda. And again, we had another uh, boom in uh, housing prices uh, that happened uh, uh, and the effect on housing prices was more pronounced than uh, the effect on investment or net exports. So what we've seen in Canada, and again, this is underscored by the fact that we have uh, always have strong demand for new housing because of our uh, immigration policy, uh, we've seen that these interest rate increases have led, uh, or decreases rather, and have led to... Um, uh, home asset prices uh, growing uh, in our larger centers dramatically. So what are the causes of uh, our uh, current uh, high inflation? Because we've lived in the West 
for uh, much of the last 20 years uh, in a low inflation environment uh, where inflation has been bounded between 1% and 3% a year often. Uh, and now we've got inflation that uh, was approaching uh, double-digit uh, levels or exceeding it in much of our uh, Western economies. Well, right now, our global supply chain is uh, messed up. Uh, we've got China locked down because of zero COVID, and so they're not uh, producing uh, near as much for the rest of the world as the manufacturing hub of the world. We have an energy shortage. We have had a U.S. labor market shock due to um, uh, COVID. So uh, we had over a million official deaths from COVID, um, there are lots of people who uh, who have been labor impaired called long uh, haul covid workers i myself am a long haul uh, covid uh, um worker i i've uh, been fatigued and and um impaired in terms of my ability to work since i uh, contracted covid and uh the there have also been a number of people who have been closer to retirement age uh, and who've seen uh, their home prices and stock market prices go up uh, as a result of um, the uh, expansionary monetary and fiscal policies that were a response to COVID that uh, that uh, they've decided to essentially drop out of uh, the uh, workforce, uh, retire early. And so you've, you've seen, you've had people leaving. Now that kind of relates, uh, to, um, the demand side conditions that were created. So the U.S. money supply in the last several years broadly expanded by 40%. Uh, that was done because of the, uh, uh the spending spree that, um, the U.S. government went on to support the economy for COVID. And uh, that was essentially financed by purchase, the central bank purchasing the new issuance of the, gov- of the federal government debt. And, of course, they lowered interest rates. And so having really low interest rates fueled housing prices along with the government spending that fueled uh, demand. And that has led to uh, corporate uh, um, higher demand in, in for housing in the United States, led to higher demand for all kinds of goods uh, and services and uh, in, in and in general the uh, corporate profits went up because uh, the uh, US government went into very heavy def- deficit spending to support uh, the economy during the covid crisis and of course we did the same here in Canada as well running a massive uh, federal d- deficits through a program called CERB and um and we are now dealing with the um uh i think in in many ways at least uh the initial serb uh the 2020 um uh economic support was uh w- was valuable and um there's there's was of course problems with fraud uh, that we're now finding finding out but the government uh, probably responded as well as it could in a once in a hundred year emergency that, uh, that, uh, they weren't, uh, otherwise, uh, ready for. 
Now, uh, during that COVID era, if we look relative to uh, government bonds, housing uh, uh, did quite well in the United States, as did uh, um, the uh, S&P 500, which is the broad index of the 500 largest um, market uh, um, the mar- uh, firms that are traded on uh, on the stock market in by market capitalization in the United States. And so in general, we saw, and corporate bonds did well because interest rates were lowered as well. So asset prices increased. Again, that's led uh, to uh, some wealth effects where people have dropped out of the economy. Now, the San Francisco Federal Reserve has done some research in terms of breaking down if you take inflation and you've got uh, inflation that is, uh, say, 8%, and you say 2% would be a normal inflation, uh, then the remaining 6% of inflation, they break it down and they say that uh, 4% of that inflation is what we would call supply-driven, uh, and uh, 2% of it is what's called demand-driven. Now, loosely speaking, uh, if most of it are, if there's twice as much of an impetus of uh, inflation coming from a supply shock, why then is uh, the central banks uh, focusing on supply uh, or uh, or why are we uh, why are we concerned about the de- over it might appear that we're overly concerned with the demand driven factors so let's put it that way we've seen interest rates uh, rise at an unprecedented pace and an unprecedented magnitude in modern history in terms of the level of uh, the uh, by the central bank. And the central banks are typically trying to address, uh, well, they, they basically uh, only have the power to address uh, demand factors. Uh, most of their ability to influence the economy is through uh, demand. But uh, here's some comments from the chairman of the Federal Reserve, uh, Jay Powell, on uh, in on March uh, 2022. Uh, Overall, the labor labor market is strong, but showing a clear imbalance of supply and demand. Our monetary policy tools cannot help with labor supply in the near term, but in a long expansion, the factors holding back supply will likely ease. In the meantime, we uh, aim to use our tools to moderate demand growth thereby facilitating continued sustainable increases in employment and wages. So uh, what the the, the, uh, Federal Reserve is saying there is, well, we can't really do anything for supply, but we can uh, influence demand. And if we are able to uh, get rid of the demand issues, supply will, in, in the long run, with proper monetary policy on the demand side, will take care of itself. Now there's a fear, and this uh, that uh, expectations uh, of higher inflation uh, become the norm in our society. So right now we've, we're living in a society where we've been used to inflation being low and stable, uh, somewhere between one and three percent uh, most years, and uh, in in the uh, 70s and 80s. We had high inflationary expectations in our economy because we had run high inflation for a long uh, period of time, and that took us uh, some severely high interest rates, interest rates that 
uh, uh, short-term interest rates that approached 20% in the United States and in Canada in order to, and, and required the provoking of a large, a deep recession in order to uh, get inflationary expectations under control. So a lot of uh, what's going on here in uh, with respect to central bank policy is a fear that people will begin to believe that inflation is going to be higher uh, in the future and longer, and that this, uh, these inflationary expectations will become self-perpetuating. And uh, in the Jackson Hole uh, Summit, every year uh, the Federal Reserve uh, attends a conference in Jackson Hole, Wyoming, uh, in uh, late summer. And again, Jay Powell said at uh, at the 2022, uh, the summer's uh, uh, Jackson Hole Conference, that the longer the current bout of high inflation continues, the greater the chance that expectations of higher inflation will become entrenched. So this is uh, the sum of all fears for the central banks, that uh, consumers and businesses will begin to expect higher inflation in the future. So if your primary concern is that inflation is going to stick around too long because uh, it'll take a while for the supply uh, conditions of inflation to fix themselves, uh, and your only tool is to deal with demand-side inflation, uh, but you're worried about if, you, if inflation stays high, too high too long that you'll get entrenched expectations of inflation, then you need to uh, put pressure on uh, th- that mechanism, which will most quickly bring down uh, aggregate demand and hence uh, push uh back in a deflationary way on the economy. And that, of course, is the asset price channel. So the asset price channel, particularly with home prices and stock market and bond market, is a way to reduce the wealth of individuals and create a deflationary pressure in the economy. Now, if we look at some comments from Carolyn Rogers, who is the Deputy Governor of the Bank of Canada, she gave a speech in November of 2022. And she said, in addition, house prices are also coming down, albeit modestly so far, relative to their recent increase. We need lower house uh, prices to restore balance to Canada's housing market and to make home ownership more affordable for Canadians. But lower house prices may add stress for those uh, people who purchased recently. They will have reduced equity and this may limit their options to refinance. So they're understanding that uh, that they need to rein inflation in, in Canada. We need to put pressure on the housing market. Now, uh, we can look at uh, the housing affordability index uh, in the United States, for example. So on the left-hand side of the panel uh, on the bottom uh, graph, we see the drivers of affordability. And the drivers of affordability, uh, we can see that the, the two most significant drivers of the affordability in the United States that have caused affordability to be um, uh, 30% below baseline uh, are the interest rate changes that they had. So when they took interest rates low and uh, the price changes. Now those price changes, of course, were also fueled by uh, uh, the um, 
COVID crisis, people moving around because of COVID, as well as uh, the uh, rise in the stock market and uh, bond market, their prof- profitability of their investment portfolios. Now, uh, if we're looking at the right-hand side of the, the panel, again, we can uh, look at uh, the uh, affordability, uh, the share of income own, needed to own a median-priced uh, home in the United States has uh, gone up um, from uh, 30% uh, pre-COVID to 45% uh, or more. The green line is the urban uh, centers and the orange uh, line is rural centers. And in the rural uh, pre-COVID, uh, you had about, you, you needed about uh, 25% uh, share of, uh, of income needed to own a median price home. Uh, now you need uh, over 40%. So again, it's another measure of saying that houses, house value have expanded relative to the, to individual, their prices of homes in the United States have expanded relative to, uh, people's incomes. So if we want to do a, a comparison in Canada, and if we're looking at Toronto, uh, and Vancouver, then we need house prices to fall somewhere around 40% uh, to get to 2019 levels of affordability. Now, the Bank of Canada's job in getting uh, housing prices to fall in Toronto and um, uh, Vancouver by that much, uh, which they would like to see, is difficult, made more difficult by the fact that we have half a million uh, new immigrants in Canada every year, and those immigrants are generally uh, earning uh, higher than average Canadian salaries, and they're coming with some wealth, often from other countries, and uh, that is going to make uh, that kind of uh, creates an inherent uh, demand uh, price push in Canada for housing. So that task of uh, readjusting the home prices in Canada to 2019 levels is a uh, more challenging task for the Bank of Canada than it would be for the Federal Reserve to achieve a comparable level of adjustment in the United States. But that is why we can expect to see interest rates higher for longer because we want, the Federal Reserve will want to make sure that, uh, our wealth uh, get gets lower, and so that we kill demand and we choke off inflation. Um, of course, uh, myself and Michael are dubious that inflation is going to be able to be fully restored back into that uh, one to three percent level uh, because of uh, supply conditions, and we'll talk about that momentarily. But uh, but in the meantime, uh, we've seen, definitely seen some wealth effects. In the United States, uh, there was over $6 trillion of wealth lost just in the second quarter of 2022 alone. So we've seen the demand for wealth-sensitive uh, items, uh, Rolexes, homes, and cars, uh, start to fall dramatically. Wealth effect uh, of, of uh, holding assets in interest rates interest-sensitive assets has uh, grown over the years. And so if we look at where we are in 2020, 
over in, in and look at Canada, over seventy percent of Canadians' wealth is uh, captured in uh, their uh, homes and stock and uh, bond portfolios and in their um, uh, retirement uh, pensions. So these are all interest-sensitive assets. So this is what the Bank of Canada is counting on in terms of reducing demand and thereby reducing uh, um, home prices in the major centres in, in the Canadian economy. Now, um, there's an argument to be made that the central bank policy, in a way, is counterproductive in the long run. Now let's uh, let's get there. First of all, what we've uh, even by the central bank's own admission, two thirds of the inflation we're seeing in the economy right now is being driven by supply side issues. So if we don't have, um, uh, if we're not going to address uh, supply side issues, then we're not going to be able to deal with supply side inflation. Uh, over uh, over the medium to long term, so uh, so or even short term, uh, of course, uh, uh, by definition. Now uh, let's take energy policy. Everything that we consume uh, requires oil, and if we have an energy shortage, we're going to see in the future because we're still in a, a period eight years on where we've been. Under investing in uh, oil production, so last year to the tune of 150 uh, billion dollars, uh, we're going to get declining oil production while demand for oil continues to uh, be stable or even growing, and so that's going to continue to put supply side uh, pressures in the economy. When you have uh, raised the short-term interest rate to the point that now uh, short-term interest rates are higher than long-term interest rates, you've inverted the yield curve in the economy, uh, you now have created a higher cost of capital, which creates uh, uh, economic growth uncertainty, because usually when the uh, yield curve is inverted, you end up with a recession. So you're going to diminish investment and you're going to, and you're going to, of course, consumer demand itself is going to fall off and that's going to be a diminishment for investment. So, so in general, that investment is what fuels our long-term supply in our economy. So, um, uh, monetary policy is an indiscriminate measure that knocks out consumption, investment. Now, a better move would be, uh, from a policy perspective, would be higher personal income taxes and targeted investment credits and lower government spending. So it would be better if you were trying to manipulate the economy more on the fiscal side than on the monetary side. And if you had government reducing its spending, uh, while it was providing incentives for, uh, you know, say, housing uh, supply and uh, uh, energy supply in the economy and, uh, and uh, restraining uh, personal consumption, especially at the top of the uh, income uh, pyramid uh, through higher personal taxes. When you look out a little farther... Uh, my, my take on it is that, that they really did not focus at all 
on the investment side, uh, which where where we have a long running problem, uh, and focus far too much on boosting uh, per- personal and and and, uh, and government uh, consumption, uh, which we probably really do not need uh, in 22 and 23. Uh, and so don't feel that we really needed any support for uh, consumption uh, as, as we move out there. In, in investment, though, still lags, uh, and uh, that's both on the private side and on the public side. So when we when we do look at the spending that was offered up in the budget, we know, David, that the government wants us to see it as a, an investment for growth kind of budget. There may be some of that, uh, and some of it may only play out over time. But how much of the actual spending in the recent budget will actually stimulate the economy in a fairly direct fashion, in your view? Well, being generous, I would say, of, of the additional roughly $100 million, being very generous, 20 or 25% of that is for growth. The the rest is is actually to boost boost consumption, as I say, both public and private consumption. Uh, and uh, I, I guess that was the question in my mind as to why, why at this point we would actually be uh, boosting that side. On the investment side, as I've said, it, there is good reason uh, to think we need to invest more over the coming couple of years. So what what would you think that should look like? If we're designing it, uh, what should that investment be shaped as? Well, broadly speaking, let me, let me just do broad speaking. Um, we need investment in... Uh, in, in our oil and gas sector and what we are doing in, and what we need to do in the energy sector, uh, writ large, um, because remember, uh, energy is a major export for us. And if we're going to pay our bills, we have to, we have to be able to sell something abroad to, uh, to replace that. Secondly, in Ontario in particular, uh, we've got a manufacturing sector, uh, which has been based on the internal combustion engine, uh, and that, uh, that requires change. So we need to build a new ecosystem, um, if you will, in that regard. And finally, the one thing they did hint at, which is absolutely correct, is the digitalization of our service economy. Uh, we really do need to focus on that, including the financial sector, which um, Mr. Pence did not mention at all. So in our next video, we will uh, follow up with our uh, third and final video in the new year on the energy crisis and uh, suggested policy solutions. And uh, we will uh, talk about uh, this idea of uh, that has uh, been put forward or coined by a Wall Street uh, analyst, uh, Zoltan Pozar, called Bretton Woods 2.0 and the possible uh, return of uh, gold uh, to play a a significant value as a uh, monetary uh, asset uh, for um, countries involved in uh, trade with each other. Thank you, uh, Genusians, for uh, supporting the channel and watching. 
uh, on behalf of uh, Michael and myself, I wish you uh, happy holidays, and uh, I hope to see you uh, again on the channel in the new year. All the best. Uh, enjoy your uh, family and friends uh, in this holiday season, and we'll see you again in the new year. Cheers.